you know, with machine learning, the nice thing is statistically, you sort of know whether you're getting a valid answer or not. And if you're not getting a valid answer, you can't force it. It's in the data or it's not in the data. You need to change the way you're looking at the data, change the way you're thinking about the data, change the questions you're asking about the data, or get different data. <laughs> One of those things has to happen in order to get valid results. Welcome to episode eight of the Pursuit Desk, our adventures in business development, marketing, and sales enablement technology. My name is Jason Noble, and I am your host. Today's episode is actually really unique compared to some of the episodes that we've done in the past. Um, I'm really excited at the opportunity to dig pretty deep into the technologies that are driving innovation in business development and marketing, not just in those two spaces, but really across a, a more broad cross section um, of legal tech. So for me personally, you know, I, my, my career is, is built on my passion for helping folks be more successful through the use of technology. And so today what we have is a really interesting topic on data. And our, our guest is Sean Hainsworth. His current role is as a senior architect at Cooley. Very, very impressive background in everything from Java to Kafka to Spark to machine learning and really everything in between. So just a very, very broad cross-section of technical skills. He's also a, a published instructor on Pluralsight, having done a course on Azure Machine Learning, which is fantastic. So with that, I want to say good morning, Sean, and welcome to the Pursuit Desk. Good morning, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, and like I said, you know, this one's going to be a, a little bit different. We're going to probably get pretty nerdy, so I'm I love it. Um, I hope that our subscribers love it and our audience loves it. Don't be afraid. Exactly. Do not be afraid of technology. It's all meant to help us. So, you know, what I'd like to start with is just, you know, obviously your experience is, is you know, goes back many, many years, but what are some of the challenges uh, that you've seen law firms have as it relates to taking advantage of data, whether that's for the purpose of AI, you know, machine learning, business development, what are some of the big data challenges that, that you've experienced? I think there are really two, two major challenges that law firms face. The first one is, is fairly common across industries, which is just having data in different silos. So your marketing and or business development department will have a database. Your HR department will have a database. Financial services will have a database. And so uh, what happens is that you have various silos. Oftentimes, practice areas will keep data in Excel spreadsheets or custom databases. And so really one of the first challenges is to be able to identify all the data sources and bring them together. And that's really a question of, you know, master data management, data governance, knowing what the source of each record is, identifying duplicates, matching records that may be typed slightly differently in different systems. It's, it's not in any way sexy or interesting work, but it really needs to be done is just uh, having a unified data model. And, and that is pretty typical for all industries. I would say the other challenge for law firms is that a lot of our data is in text documents. So we have enormous amount of data in the contracts that we write. We have a lot of data in the time card narratives that are written every day. The challenge for us is to understand uh, in as much detail as possible what our attorneys are doing, how much time they're spending doing it, how we can optimize that process um, and how we can therefore maximize either our efficiency, our leverage and or our profit. And so I think the other uh, challenge is to start looking at unstructured data 
and to be able to pull that data into our overall data store so that we can start doing the kinds of analysis that will reach across not only our departments and our silos, but also be pulling data out of our contracts. And we'll go into a lot more detail about how we can pull data out of natural language or documents. But I think that's a large challenge for law firms. Yeah, you talked about, you know, data silos and kind of the the unstructured data challenge. Are you seeing benefits being realized from the work that we've done in data warehousing specifically around AI and machine learning? Are you finding that while we have the data warehouse, you know, maybe the ETL and it's pulling in and we have great golden records and all that good stuff and it's valuable, but in the world of kind of machine learning and AI, are you seeing that, that those data stores are, are valuable, they're providing value, or are you finding that you're, you're creating kind of new, I guess, new data warehouses or data lakes to, to support the machine learning components? Yeah. So the trick with machine learning, artificial intelligence, is that data is king. You need as much data as you can get. Data warehouses, you know, uh, the purpose of a data warehouse is to take data that's typically in a transactional database, like your accounting system, and to put it into a database that is structured for querying, multidimensional querying, so that I can now slice by practice group, by office, by year, and pull out certain measures related to that. So data warehousing is a very um, mature, established technology, and data warehouses are great for taking data that we have and giving us uh, rapid access to querying that data and doing drill downs and drill throughs. And that's great. And a lot of firms are doing that with their financial systems. But I would say rather than looking at the data, the data warehouse is sort of a different view into the data that may be in our financial system. And what we want to be able to do is combine the data from different systems. So if you look at business development, the first thing you want to know if you have a bunch of clients or prospects who show up at an event that you're hosting is how many of those clients are actual clients right now or subsidiaries of our clients or parents of our clients. How many of these clients, you know, uh, maybe we work for this, this company and they've been inactive for a couple of years. Are they leads in our system? Do our attorneys have any relationships with them? You know, did, did, do we have any contacts in our marketing database that would help us identify how to approach these clients? So that, that's really, that's not so much about, and that's just one example. That's not so much about creating a data warehouse as that is about bringing the different data sources together so that we can connect the marketing data, because uh, the, the key with marketing is to make sure that whatever marketing activities or campaigns you have, they're as effective as possible. And you have to be able to measure that effectiveness. And that's something that's difficult to do. I think a lot of our understanding from a market of, marketing perspective is, of effectiveness is you know, sort of at the discretion and or feel of the marketing director. I think that's how it's traditionally been. And I think marketing directors do a great job. They understand their clients, they understand the business, and they have very good insights. But adding a layer of data to that, understanding how much business we're driving, how many of these campaigns are successful, what specific campaigns or specific messages are most successful, that requires bringing that traditional marketing data together with other data sources that may be in the firm so that we can look more holistically and start doing analyses across what are traditional silos. So I think that's from the artificial intelligence machine learning perspective, it doesn't matter so much whether we're in a relational database, whether we're in a data warehouse, whether we're in a data lake, how the data is structured in the database is less important than identifying the data that may be relevant to whatever experiment or you know, analysis we're doing 
and then um, cleaning and, and, and featureizing that data. And that's, uh, that's an additional step that's typically taken for machine learning that's not done in other kind of analysis where we want to create features or we may want to normalize our data. If, that, if, that, um, if, that, uh, if those terms aren't familiar to you, don't worry about it. It's just sort of an extra step we need to take to make sure that whatever model we create is more effective. Yeah, and actually that, that brings up a really good point, which is that you know usually in this this kind of experimentation machine uh, learning workflow, you know, you're gonna have a, a some data that your firm has, but inevitably there's always you always have to reach out to external data sources and data sets, right? To start making this effective. Like as an example, you know, in the spacey world, you know, they have predefined models and data sets for obviously doing natural language processing. Are there any data sets or sources of data sets, whether it's Kaggle or something else that you've found to be valuable in your workflow? Yeah, so I think um, that, that's another great point is that we wanna look beyond the data that's simply in our firm, the data that we own and or, or originate. I think there are data sources you know, of uh, corporations and corporate entity relationships. Uh, capital IQ comes to mind so that we um, have a lot more information on specific companies. PitchBook comes to mind. Uh, LexisNexis comes to mind. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of companies providing extreme valuable data that we want to be able to match up or mash up with our own data in order to be able to have better analyses. And so Pacer Pro is another one. Um, they do a terrific job taking court data and structuring it. So if we can connect up with Pacer Pro data. So yeah, I think not simply looking at the data that's in the firm, but looking at the data that's available and that we can bring in. Because once again, the more data we have, the better. I would say really the, the keys to any data science experiment are having the right data and understanding what business problem you're trying to solve yeah. or what business problem you can solve with the data that you have. Oftentimes we'll go into an experiment and say, you know, this is the problem I want to solve, but maybe we don't have the data to actually answer that specific question, yep. but maybe we have the data to answer a related question. So yeah, we really have to get the right data set and we have to write, ask the right business question. And that will lead to uh, success in a data science world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that, that, that we do is we, you know, we start with the question, right? So what is the question that we are trying to get answered? Because ultimately, instead of looking at the data that you already have and asking yourselves, well, what questions can this data answer? It's a lot more important to say, well, what question are we trying to get answered, right? So it's just, it's a different, it's a different approach. And the good thing about it is that it is typically a very business driven approach as opposed to a very, hey, we have all these columns, we have this cube, we can slice, we can give you time series data, et cetera, et cetera. We, we kind of change that and we say, hey, let's, let's start with the question, right? Yeah. And we have to also get out of patterns of thinking. So to give you an example, if you look at uh, time cards, right? Time cards are the lifeblood of data in a law firm in a lot of ways. You know, I've done a lot of experiments looking at trying to predict phase and task codes out of time cards. And sometimes you can do that, and sometimes you can't do that. The reason why you may not be able to do that is you simply may not have enough good data to train on. The attorneys have got to have had to have already entered a lot of valid phase and task codes for the model to train to then be able to tr predict phase and task codes for time cards that don't have them. And if you don't have the data to support that, you have to stop and step back and say, okay, phase and task is the way we've already always done this. But what other ways can we do this? Maybe we can identify common activities that are not necessarily related to phase and task 
And um, uh, we can do that simply by using natural language processing and uh, working off of key terms that can be as, as simple as using more keywords as opposed to a full-blown uh, artificial intelligence neural network. You know, there may be way, and then once we get lists of activities, then we may be able to relate those activities to, to task, to phase and task codes. But we have to always move from the perspective of why do we want phase and task codes? It's not as an end in and of itself. Mm -hmm. We want phase and task codes so that we can understand how our attorneys are spending the time, or their time, uh, whether they're spending their time efficiently, how we can improve leverage, how we can budget future matters, right? Those are the business questions. Phase and task codes is a step along the way to answering that business question. So, you know, sometimes we have to rethink our, you know, the way we approach a problem and say, okay, we can't go that way. But the ultimate goal is, for example, to predict leverage or to be able to predict budgeting. So if we can't do that through phase and task, we still have all the narratives in our time codes, all of the matter historical data, and there may be other approaches to solving that problem. So you do have to have a flexibility of thinking because, you know, with machine learning, the nice thing is statistically, you sort of know whether you're getting a valid answer or not. And if you're not getting a valid answer, you can't force it. It's in the data or it's not in the data. You need to change the way you're looking at the data, change the way you're thinking about the data, change the questions you're asking about the data, or get different data. Yep. <laughs> One of those things has to happen in order to get valid results. Yeah, and I think there is a lot of, you know, over the last few years, basically what we've seen is, you know, an executive or someone says, hey, this artificial intelligence things thing, you know, I want it to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, inevitably we have to kind of take a step back and say, well, yes, we know that there's a lot of hype and a lot of promise around artificial intelligence, but, you know, in reality, it is not magic. It's not magic, right? It, it's very logical and mathematical as to what you can and cannot um, infer. The cool thing is that, you know, like with NLP, when you're, you're working with NLP and you're, you're kind of identifying key terms and entities, it's not like you have this lookup list of, you know, all of the key terms per se. It's more like you have this kind of mathematical model that says, hey, these words are kind of in this shared vector space. And so when you introduce a new word to that model, if it lands in that similar vector space, then you start to get matches. And so that's kind of where the magical mathematics come in, right? It's not just, hey, we're going to create this Uber list of keywords and then be able to identify it. It's more about, hey, let's give a, you know, each phrase, each word a mathematical representation and then be able to find, you know, terms that are in that same three-dimensional space. So there's a little bit of magic, but it's still very, very logical, right? Yeah. And uh, just, just to answer the first part of that question first, I think from a management perspective, you never want to say, I want this technology right? Technology is not an end in and of itself. What you want to say is I want to answer this business question. How do I answer this business question? Can I do it with the technologies that I currently have? If the answer is yes, great. Why introduce a new technology? Absolutely. If the answer is no, then you have to look at other technologies. And you know, the problem is you can't simply just flip a switch and turn on artificial intelligence. I mean, there's obviously two ways to go about it. There's build and buy. A lot of firms are buy firms. They just want to go out and buy one of the many very good products off the shelf that gives them the functionality that they need and they move forward. And that's great. I think the advantage of doing things internally somewhat is that you can set yourself apart from the pack. 
right? So if you're buying the same software with the same insights yep. that a lot of your competitors are buying, you're going to have similar insights. Yep. So the larger firms, the firms that have more resources to be able to develop out uh, their, their data science teams, I think will give them, and, to, and uh, with that, their uh, control of their own data and their merging of their own data, I think will give them competitive advantages long-term. So, but I think that takes a number of steps. You have to say, I wanna make an investment in this over time. I don't wanna just do artificial intelligence. You can't do that. You've gotta have staff that is trained in different you know, skills than they currently have, than your developers currently have. You have to understand what kinds of problems can be solved with it. Your managers have to understand what kind of problems can be solved with it. And like you said, it's not, an, it's not a magic bullet. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to use artificial intelligence and get the answer. You, you, there are certain cases where, yes, you can. If you're going to do that in-house, you're going to have to build out the resources to support that. If you're going to buy it off the shelf, then great. Third party has got all the resources and they will deliver that to you. And, and I would like to take on the second part of that question. We can go into more detail about what natural language processing actually does and where some of the quote unquote magic comes in, because I think that's very interesting. And I think we can explain that in a way that is not technical or, or too mathy, as yeah, it were. Absolutely. Yeah. So as, as you were kind of talking about that, it, it really brought to light that one of the unique aspects of what each firm has is their corpus of knowledge, right? So it is that unstructured data. It's the structured data. Like that is truly what is, is unique in, um, within the context of the firm itself. And to your point, you know, there are definitely off the shelf products where you can take advantage of that unstructured data and you can do some artificial intelligence on, you know, clause analysis and, and similarities within those, within those documents. But really I, th I think that it's going to take a, a long-term strategy or foresight to see that eventually every firm will need to have some type of a unique offering as it relates to artificial intelligence. Like it can truly become a differentiator. And for those firms that are investing in it now, they will start to, to generate and build their own unique differentiators where other firms will just simply take advantage of, of off-the-shelf type products. So are you seeing, maybe we can't get into this because it's specific to your firm, but I mean, are you seeing, you know, some of that pattern where, where the firm is taking this stuff seriously as opposed to, hey, it's just a technology? Are, are firms looking at it as something that will become a strategic differentiator? Yeah, and, and I can answer that question generally. I think there are firms that see this as a, as a strategic differentiator and are taking it very seriously. I just spoke at the ARC uh, Business Intelligence Conference, and there were a number of speakers from different firms there whose firms are really taking this seriously. I do agree that nobody knows your business or your practice area like you do. And even if you are hiring a third party to do your analysis, you're still providing the data to them. You really have to understand your own data. And even if you're hiring a third-party data aggregator, you need to be very involved in that process because you want to, to be able to use your data in a way that maximizes its, its return, its value to you. And once again, the point is you understand your data better than anyone. The way, and, and one of the other complications with law firms as opposed to other types of businesses is that a law firm from a data perspective is really an aggregation of small businesses. Your practice areas are different. They have different um, you know, leaders, they have different cultures, they do a different 
kind of work. They have different profit models. They have different engagement models. So um, this is also what's tricky about being in a law firm is that what you're doing for your your you know your patent group is very different than what you're doing for your litigation group or your M and A group or your private equity group. So I think to that degree, we really do want to get local with our data, if I can use that term, and local with our analyses as much as possible because the goal is, from, from a business development perspective, is the differentiator. Why would you choose our firm over other firms? Yes. We need the, we need the rationale, hopefully backed up by data, to say this is why we are better at X M&A work than the other firms. This is what this is what we can explain that we have actually done and we see in the data. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's important to understand your own data whether you're using third party or not. Absolutely. So I want to um, dig, you know, deeper into because I think you and I we've shared some conversations and kind of our shared belief that of all of the artificial intelligence technology or building blocks that are out there, you know, it's natural language processing that really offers the most promise specifically in legal. So why don't you just, you know, for our listeners, maybe you can synthesize down natural language processing, why it's important, why it's above and beyond chatbots, and and maybe just kind of try to break it down in as, as, I guess, simple terms as possible. Yeah, sure. So the exciting thing about natural language processing, uh, one, I think it is critical for law firms because so much of our data is in documents. And two, there have been some really significant technical innovations in the last five to seven years that have been game changers in natural language processing. So at its core, natural language processing is, as you mentioned, looking at all the words that appear in a document and trying to transform that into numbers or features that then tell us information about that document. So at its simplest, you can look at term frequency, right? How often does a specific term show up in this document? There's a, you, can, you can go further and say term frequency, inverse document frequency. In other words, you can take how often that, that term shows up compared to uh, the other terms in the document. You can get a sense of its relationship to the other terms in the document. The math gets complicated when you start to look at NLP. So it's not something we can explain from a mathematical perspective, but I don't think we really have to. What you mentioned about a vector space was interesting. If you, the easiest way to picture a vector is just on a two-dimensional grid, a line with an arrow. So, you know, a line pointing in space. And what's interesting about NLP is that you can do 100-dimensional vectors or 200-dimensional vectors. Now, that's impossible to picture in your mind. Mm. Um, so you just picture it in two or three dimensions, and it makes your life a lot easier. But one example is that with all the training we've done on models now, there's a vector for king and there's a vector for queen. And if we look at the vector for man and woman, they're almost parallel. Mm. So king is a man with the concept of royalty added to it. And queen is the concept of woman, is woman with the concept of royalty added to it. Mm. And we can almost see in space the vector for royalty as the connector between the vectors between man and woman. It's very, very cool in that regard when you start to think about it. Now, the other aspect of this that we have to be very careful of, and this applies less to legal documents, but that we, when we analyze text that's been written, we adopt all of the biases of that text. So you can also look at man and woman and the parallel vectors you find in the medical industry are doctor and nurse. Mm. 
That is not okay these days. Yeah, that's not accurate. Right? We are not going to say that, yeah. that women are nurses and men are doctors, yeah. but that's what the computer learned from studying all these documents. So we have to be very aware about what we're doing and, and how we're looking at it. And there's a lot of, a lot of discussion about AI fairness um, and making sure that our models don't include implicit bias. Um, I think that's worth mentioning, but I don't think it's worth dwelling on because there's less bias in legal contracts than there are in other forms of writing. But yes, that's that's the core of NLP. Now, now the two advances that have really improved NLP are twofold. One is sequence models. And what that means is typically we would look at a document as a bag of words. That means if we just took all the words out of the document, threw them in a bag and shook it up, we would have a bag of all the words that were in that document, but we wouldn't have a sense of the order of the words, mm. what came before something else. If we're looking at term frequency, we're just counting the number of times that word is in my bag. Mm. Sequence models allow us to have a sense of sequence, so we know what words came before, what words came after, what words came immediately before, or quite you know, distantly before, 10, 12, 15 words before. And all of that feeds into the model. And that gives us much, much, much better results. The other, the other thing that's been a huge improvement is that in order to train a natural language model, you need a lot of documents, millions really, to get good training. And most firms simply just don't have enough of a, a large enough corpus particularly when you're looking at a specific practice area or some, where you're trying to ask a business problem to, uh, to really train a model effectively. So what's come up, and this really came, I believe, from image processing first, is the idea of transfer learning. And the idea is that you can train a model on, a, on millions and millions and millions of images and take, and take the result of that and then use it to train on a smaller set. So the example I like to give is, of all the images in the world, if you're trying to classify what kind of dog you have a picture of, let's say you have you know, 100 breeds of dogs and you have 10,000 pictures of dogs, you could never train a model on that. But if you take all the pre-trained models and then just add it on the end, you're able to do that. And so this is easier to explain a little bit when I got a PowerPoint in front of me and I can show slides. Yeah. But the idea being that Google and other large companies have trained massive, massive models. Google has trained a model called BERT on 2 billion documents. And all of those weights, the weights are basically the value of the model transferred to your model. So all of a sudden, you may only have 10,000 documents in your firm, but you are building that on top of the 2 billion documents that Bert trained. And Bert learned so much about the English language in those 2 billion documents that then it's able to apply all of that information to your 10,000 documents. And that has drastically improved natural language processing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really is fascinating, like just how, how fast this is moving and how much you know, research and development is, is being put in by Microsoft, by Google. Like it's just such, a, such an important aspect of, of the future of, of literally everything. So, you know, what are some of the, let's, let's get down to some of the, the very specific tools that, that you leverage, right? So what is your, you know, what is your, I guess, toolbox of, of things, whether it's, you know, Python libraries that you like to use, you know, what are some of the, 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 the tools that you're using today in relation to whether it's NLP or, or some other 
area of artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think there's a lot of choices in terms of tooling. I would say when I started, I was more of an R developer. R is a programming language that is often used for data science, but I have become much more of a Python developer lately. It seems like the industry is really moving toward Python and uh, so many of the toolkits are, are, you know, they're just terrific toolkits in Python. So, you know, what I mentioned about transfer learning means that you can actually do experiments on smaller machines. You don't need the huge horsepower if you're going to transfer, you know, all the the weights in from a larger model. So on my laptop, I will train using TensorFlow and Keras. Those are two Python frameworks for doing deep learning. But I don't think the tooling really matters, you know, too much. And and actually the the actual coding of the experiments is not that complicated. It's complicated to understand, but it doesn't end up being but it doesn't end up being a lot of lines of code. The real trick in artificial intelligence and machine learning is is preparing the data. And building a model, training a model, is actually just a few lines of code, typically. I would say also that all of the cloud vendors, Microsoft included, have terrific toolkits. So Microsoft has got their Cognitive Services Toolkit. That includes a document cracker. So you send a PDF files, and it cracks the PDF file and extracts the text. Because that's one of the initial steps you have to take in any NLP experiment, is you have to get the text out of the document. And if it's in a PDF or a Word document, there's a lot of other characters and formatting and other things in there that need to be stripped out. You want to just get down to the words. So there are toolkits for that. Cognitive services will, will do all kinds of things for you, including training its own models, using its own internal transfer uh, learning weights. So you can leverage the vendor's toolkits or you can build your own. And once again, it depends on how much of a data science department you're going to build out what your needs are, and what you're doing. But I think there's a lot of options in terms of toolkits, both at the programming level and at the cloud services level. Amazon, Google, they have the same types of things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the, I mean, we know that, that uh, firms are, I guess, cloud cautious, if you will. So in terms of the, you know, more the the on-premise type options, do you have exposure or, or you know, any guidance in terms of, hey, my firm, we're not going to the cloud. We can't take advantage of, of Lex or of, you know, cognitive services, whether it's Lewis. Are there more on-premy type stacks that you can make us aware of? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think most firms are cloud cautious and not ready yet to move data into the cloud. Actually, there was one presenter at the ARC conference and they wanted to know whether they could move data into the cloud. So they did an AI experiment to review all of their client contracts to see if moving data to the cloud was specifically prohibited in any any of the contracts they had signed with their clients. And the answer ended up being no, that there was a lot of a lot of clauses in there about data privacy, but there were no specific clauses about the cloud. So I thought that was really interesting just to use artificial intelligence to answer your own question. And once again, that's something you can do with NLP. It's pretty easy to identify references to the cloud in your documents. We have all of our documents. And so we can look and see if any of our clients specifically prohibit that. But in the short term, before documents go to the cloud, I think it is a little bit more limited. Microsoft is working on allowing hybrid boxes with Azure, where you can have a box that sits on-prem, but it has Azure services. I am not 100% sure about whether you can do a full cognitive services stack like that. I think if you're doing it in-house, you pretty much need to develop it from scratch because, uh, not develop it from scratch. Once again, there are plenty of toolkits. So you ask what I use for NLP, I use Spacey, right? Spacey is a terrific Mm -hmm. open source framework for doing natural language processing. 
There are a whole bunch of them out there. There's one from Allen AI, you know, which is the Steve Allen Institute, you know, the former Microsoft executive. Yeah, Spacey, Spacey is actually what we use in our, our icon product. So that is it's just an amazing, because sometimes these, these love Azure, sometimes they're a little bit cost prohibitive, right? So it, it, it can get rather pricey to leverage these. So, I mean, that was our decision, which was, hey, let's leverage Spacey more, the open source, so that we can kind of control our costs. So, yeah, I love Spacey. I think it's it's an amazing, amazing toolkit. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that. I, I love Spacey too. If you're getting started with NLP, I would start with Spacey and you're probably not going to need to go any further than that. It's free. It's open source. It's extremely well documented. It is something you can run. I run it on my laptop, you know, depending on what you're processing and you can download the weights for BERT or some of the other models and just get right into it. I actually have an experiment on my um, blog site, the Legal BI guy, where I do contract extraction on an M&A document using Spacey. And I have that that source code available. There's snippets of it on the blog post. So yeah, I think Spacey's terrific. You also will save money. That's the thing about Azure. You know, if you're just paying for compute resources, that's one cost. If you're paying for cognitive services, that's another cost and it, and it tends to be much higher. So uh, that's another advantage of bringing the skills in-house simply because, I mean, you are paying more for personnel but you have a lot more flexibility and you are paying less in cloud costs. So I'm not sure total return on investment, but it's certainly worth looking at. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the great thing about these, you know, these platform as a service technologies is that you need not worry about any of the infrastructure stuff, right? You just kind of consume their, their services, consume their APIs and you get to, you know, you can get up and running in minutes. Yeah. Although you do need, programming experience sometimes to get started with their API. Like cognitive services is not pointed at a folder of documents and get answers. There's there's Python involved, there's coding involved, there's understanding their API, there's understanding their framework. So you're still going to have to hire people even if you're using cognitive services. Maybe not as many uh, and maybe of a different type, but um, there's still a lot of cost involved. It's not just a push button situation. You know, it's not a push button system. Like some of the vendors that serve legal specifically are. You know, so LexPredict with their contract suite, you can just load up their your documents and they already know how to process them for legal and Kira similar. So there are vendors that tailor directly to the legal market where you don't have to have technical expertise in house. And that's the other. Yeah. Way and that's that's absolutely where, you know, there's a specific problem or, you know, as as you mentioned, a specific set of questions that you want to have answered. And, you know, a lot of the vendors out there are able to pre-bake their artificial intelligence to, to provide those answers. So, you know, I know, I think we could talk for hours and hours about this stuff, but I do want to give you the opportunity to, you know, talk a little bit about the future. And, you know, this can come in the form of, I'm excited about this, or, hey, here are the three things that I, I directions that I go. So what are some of the things that you know, you're keeping an, an eye on that, that you're really, really excited about. In terms of the future, I think several things are happening right now that are going to require firms to, to change the way they do business, right? So the, the business of uh, law is changing and I think it's changing rapidly. I think, you know, more of our business, especially at the, the lower level is, can, is being done by other types of firms, you know, um, other consulting firms are doing certain kinds of legal work. 
Um, I think the artificial intelligence is going to pick off some of the lower end work, the discovery work and, and other things that are currently done by, by people that are, you know, that we're billing for. I think that a lot of clients are having in-house counsel more so than in the past. And I also think that clients are having real expectations. They want budgets up front. They want us to stick with budgets. I think they manage their relationships with law firms different, differently than they did in the past. So I think, you know, that top the, you know, our top billers, the people who are doing the, the most outstanding work, they're always going to be able to do what they do and charge, um, you know, a, a large, a large amount for that because it's really worth it. But if you, as you move down, a lot of the work that we charge for at the lower level is going to get picked off. And I think that law firms are going to have to leverage their data. They're going to have to become more involved in business development. And I think they're going to have to become more efficient. So I think, you know, when I look at the future, there's a lot of technologies that I'm excited about, but I do think that, that there's going to be a need to improve our business processes. This is not just to improve partner draws. I think this is to survive as law firms into the future. We're going to have to become more efficient. And so I think this is critical to get on top of this early to understand our data, to start integrating it with our marketing practices and, and to look at it from that perspective. So um, that's a little more cautionary than excited, but I, I do think it's important for legal specifically to uh, to tackle these challenges uh, sooner rather than later. In terms of what I'm excited about, there's so many things that are fascinating with artificial intelligence right now. And there are a lot of things that are scary with artificial intelligence right now. You know, to give you an example, I did a big course image recognition and it was absolutely fascinating. I, I have never been more interested in technology than I was in, this tech, in, in image recognition. And it's being used for self-driving cars and all kinds of really cool things. It's also being used, you know, by governments to spy on and control people. You know, it's also being used, you know, facial recognition is a marvelous thing that can be used for good or for not so good. And I think we as a society are really going to have to deal with this technology that we're generating. So while I'm very excited, technically, I'm also a little, you know, like everybody cautious about where we're going with all this technology because it's moving very, very, very quickly. You know, I, I think that just, I think, I think we have to learn how to manage and balance artificial intelligence. I think the initiatives towards AI fairness are, are really important. You know, if you look at loan prediction, for example, um, and the, the models that computers come up with out of the box ha have a lot of um, bias involved in them and will deny loans to people for reasons that are probably not all that valid, right? So we, we have to be very careful about the data that we use and how we use it. I, I'm really excited for the future. I'm excited for self-driving cars, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of other things uh, that are coming, but cautiously optimistic that we as a society will use them responsibly. Sorry if that's a little preachy. That's kind of off topic. No, no. I mean, I think that there's, you know, I think everyone who who understands this and kind of sees, understands what's possible, you know, they see those, both the positives and the nefarious activities that could be leveraged from the data. And I think that fortunately it's above, like I like to focus on personally, I like to focus on, okay, well, how is this, specific technology going to, you know, improve the lives, specifically the business lives of, you know, the, the clients that, that we have. Right. So that's, that's why I get to stay excited and not, you know, not worry too much about um, what our governments are doing. <laughs> um, although can be very, very scary when you think about it. I like to focus a lot on the, you know, what, what these things make possible as it relates to how we can be better at, at business.
Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree. And, and there's so much good that comes out of this at, at the business level. I think we have the ability to understand our own businesses at such a higher degree of, uh, of specificity about uh, mm-hmm. with the data that we have. I think it, it really is going to improve business efficiency. And, and, and really, I think it's, uh, there's a race on right now for people to figure out the best ways to use this and to maximize it. And I think the firms that use their data and maximize the value of that data are going to be the ones that, that thrive. Uh, and the ones that don't may be the ones that fall be, you know, to the wayside a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so like I said, I think maybe we can have a, a second episode where we continue to talk, but I do want to thank you for coming out uh, and, and chatting with us. I know you mentioned LegalBIGuy.com, which has some super, super cool posts. So I just wanted to make sure that people are aware of that. But in terms of you know getting in contact with you, uh, what do you think the best way to, to get in contact with you would be? Probably the best way is LinkedIn, you know, uh, send me a message, connect with me. And I think that's generally the best way to reach out. And uh, I'm always happy to talk about AI, machine learning, and how it applies specifically to legal, but just the technologies in general as well. You know, it's a passion for me. So um, I'm always interested and happy to connect with anybody who's interested. Awesome. All right, Sean. Well, I appreciate you joining and uh, have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you very much.